Kaizen AI is uh, basically a value optimization platform. So it's a pre-construction uh, looking at uh, increase in profitability, reduction of uh, sort of environmental impact. Uh, often uh, environmental impact and financial impact go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So the intent is uh, can we look to reduce wastage on projects uh, using uh, this technology. Good morning. It's Monday, December 18th, and this is Deconstruct, a podcast from The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Cavanaugh. A little housekeeping announcement to start. We will be off next Monday, as you will be too. Enjoy the time with family, and we will catch you next in the new year. We're kicking off our 2024 coverage with forecasts for the CRE market and also what we're watching for New York's next legislative session. But today we're treating you to another one of our Deconstruct Live interviews from November. The Miami Forum had a special event this year, TRD.AI. So we had a number of innovators, tech developers who have launched some pretty incredible tools that allow real estate developers to optimize projects. Yeah, I am new to this world. I think a lot of us are. So today we're going to let Jay and Anuj Shah, two architects behind the AI-informed startup Kaizen, Tell us more about how their product works. The elevator pitch is Kaizen analyzes building designs and then tweaks plans to create the most profitable and efficient project for any given space that also meshes with must-haves for developers. But before we jump into that, here are our stories of last week. So I think we have to start with the signature loan sales, right? <laughs> Yeah. Um, lots of breaking news last week. So on Thursday, the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, announced a winner in the closely watched sale of Signature Bank's commercial real estate loans. The award went to Blackstone and two partners. So before we jump into the details of what the award actually is, I have a question. We've talked about all of the different pools that Signature's loans were broken up into and the different asset classes that back them. Did Blackstone and its partners take it all? No. Good question. No. So Blackstone was reportedly bidding on three of the pools. There are 14 total, and those hold $33 billion in loans. So the loans that Blackstone was gunning for are backed by commercial real estate assets, but specifically non-rent regulated commercial assets. So retail, office, and market rate rentals. Okay. So who are Blackstone's partners and what was their bid that won them, you know, that sealed the deal? <laughs> yeah. So Blackstone Real Estate Debt Strategies and B-Read are the Blackstone affiliates. They teamed up with Rialto Capital and Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. Altogether, they bid $1.2 billion for a 20% stake in a joint venture that owns the CRE loans. It's a little complicated, but, you know, that's the gist. Um, and then the CRE loans that they bid on, those uh, – those total $17 billion. So why such a small stake there? Okay, yeah. So this is a little weedier. Bear with me. Um, the way that FDIC structured the sale and what it's done in previous sales, so during the Great Recession, for example, is it creates this joint venture 
in which it retains the majority stake because a minority stake invites more bids from the private sector. The private firms are brought in to asset manage these loans primarily, and because they have skin in the game, that 20% stake, there's an incentive there for them to get the best return out of the debt. So whether through payoffs at maturity, you know, interest, debt service, workouts, et cetera, um, because it benefits them. And then it also benefits the FDIC. So like rising tide lifts all ships kind of deal. So the FDIC is happy because its goal is to recoup the most amount of money possible from this failed bank's loans. Got it. Okay. So basically Blackstone, Rialto, CPBIB, they're brought in, they manage the loans, and then the FDIC and those private firms you just mentioned, they get their money back. Yes. And the private firms make fees. That's another incentive. Okay. And on Friday afternoon, we also got news on the rent-stabilized debt. Yes. So related fund management, which partnered with two nonprofits, won a stake in $5.8 billion in rent-stabilized loans. Um, Related partnered with Community Preservation Corporation, which is a nonprofit lender, and Neighborhood Restore. And that was expected, right? Yeah. uh, The Wall Street Journal had that story first. So the trio was bidding less than 69 cents on the dollar on an approximately on an on an approximately six billion dollar pool. The drama here is that the bid drove Brookfield, which was another bidder on the debt, to write a letter to the FDIC. Saying what? Complaining? Yeah. So Brookfield bid 80 cents on the dollar. So their complaint was like, hey, our bid was higher. Why wouldn't you go with us? Um, but the thing there is that the FDIC typically wants to get the most money back. Like that's its main goal for the insurance fund. But with this deal, it was also worried about the state of rent stabilized housing because we know those buildings are in distress. So it also cited the statutory obligation to preserve affordable housing. And, you know, related gets points because it's a related because it's an affordable housing owner. CPC gets points because in the 70s, it rehabbed all of these buildings when, you know, there was blight across the city. So they looked good to the FDIC. Got it. Okay. So let's downshift into something a little more cut and dry interest rates. Yes, please. Um, So yeah, some hope from the Fed this week for the CRE world, right? Yes. So the Federal Reserve held rates steady at its last meeting of the year, but there's good news that came out of that. It forecasts three rate cuts through 2024 and investors, sponsors with debt coming due, they were exuberant. Yeah, you have a piece coming on that, right? But you told me the other day about, I don't know, just this really great quote from somebody that summed up the atmosphere post uh, post meeting. Yeah, I reached out to a bunch of people just saying, hey, what do you think about this? Um, You know, I was expecting praise, um, you know, maybe a little bit of caution, maybe, you know, some people saying, yeah, we still have to wait to see how much they cut rates by. But one investor did tell me, quote, it's the best news we have received since March 2022, and the industry should be throwing themselves a parade. (laughs) Um, So why is the industry so excited? So a few reasons. First, investors are dealing with distress and upcoming maturities, and they're hoping that lower rates will give them a chance to refinance at lower rates, obviously, or just have some extra cash. Rising rates on floating rate loans are choking a lot of investors. Um, You know, we've reported about this for months now, but borrowers in the multifamily value add space are really feeling the pain. 
There's also hope that the bid ask gap closes and with financing a bit cheaper, more buildings can trade. So if rates are a little bit lower, it might actually pencil out for an investor to come in on, you know, an asset that they might not have looked at before. We had an episode last week about this, but we've definitely seen a dearth of investment sales this year. Yeah, the stock market went bonkers. Uh, Bank stocks rallied. We saw the S&P notch a 2023 peak and the Dow Jones, I believe, hit an all time high. Yeah, that was another thing that I heard that um, I was speaking to somebody yesterday and they said, you know, this might be really beneficial for public REITs. One more piece I wanted to cover. I We know WeWork claimed bankruptcy in November. Landlords are now dealing with lease terminations and in some cases defaults. Meanwhile, Adam Newman, the infamous founder and former CEO of WeWork, is gearing up to launch his latest apartment venture, Flow. Remind us what Flow is. So it seems to be an apartment management play by Newman. It's got a technology angle, but he's also buying up the properties. So Flow is essentially developing an app that would streamline the resident experience. It would let tenants message one another, submit maintenance requests, and there will be a virtual key for elevators and rooms. Got it. So just, you know, incorporating a lot of the prop tech innovations that we saw during the pandemic. Right. So Flow is opening its first property. It's called Society Les Olas in Fort Lauderdale. It already owns the building. Well, as Newman toys with property management tech, let's hear from Jay and Anush Shah on what innovations Kaizen is bringing to development. Hi, I'm Jay Shah. I'm founder CEO of Kaizen AI. Hi, I'm Anuj. I'm a partner at Kaizen AI. So your company is called Kaizen, and I thought we could start with an explainer on what Kaizen is. Kaizen AI is uh, basically a value optimization platform. So it's a pre-construction uh, looking at uh, increase in profitability, reduction of uh, sort of environmental impact. Uh, often uh, environmental impact and financial impact go hand in hand. Mm. So the intent is uh, can we look to reduce wastage on projects uh, using uh, this technology and we've been uh, using it it's it's been uh, about five and a half years that it's been active and I know that your background is in architecture yours as well can you talk a little bit about how that influenced your vision for Kaizen sure so um, it's it's interesting uh, I'm actually uh, there's a long long legacy of architecture in the family so the mothership is actually a 43 year old um, architecture firm um, that uh, works internationally and uh, kind of was born into it uh, from when I was very young, uh, a lot of site visits on Sundays, etc. Um, when uh, we went to, uh, when I went to university, I actually came to Columbia University where uh, way back in 2008, uh, a professor was talking about machine learning and AI, etc., which seemed very out there at that time. Mm. Um, Worked in New York for some time, uh, went back uh, to Mumbai and uh, spent eight years doing large-scale projects, uh, again, uh, across the world. Realized in about 2018 that there is a potential of using AI to uh, actually implement, uh, uh, you know, optimization, which is, uh, you know, looking at uh, how do we make something leaner, cleaner, etc. That was that started the journey of developing this uh, platform. 
So I know when you talked to Susanna before, you used a project you had in Mumbai, I believe, to show exactly how Kaizen optimizes designs. Can you give us an explainer on that project and what Kaizen was able to do there? Sure. So um, what's interesting is that um, the, that was a, a one, of a, one of a more complicated project where usually we like coming in pre-construction but also pre-approvals mm. so that allows us the opportunity of actually uh, you know offering more uh, changes that are feasible however uh, in that case the approvals were already uh, done they had already gone ahead and sold apartments on the project so there was the limitations were very high because you couldn't really change the apartments, you couldn't really change any slab outline. Right. Um, and, you know, most of the things were frozen. They had already started work on site where the foundations were being laid when we first met. Um, within those limitations, we were able to add about 55 million US dollars of profitability mm -hmm. uh, by doing two things. We were able to drastically reduce the common areas um, on on um, the uh, residential floors. Uh, so this is about um, a million odd square foot of residential. We were doing about 150 meters where uh, there were 30, 30 residential floors and eight parking floors. And we were able to uh, really uh, reduce common area on the residential floors. And we were able to uh, improve parking efficiency also where we were able to do it in four parking floors rather than eight with the same number of car parks without any mechanical uh, or stack parking. So that allowed us to actually do 34 residential floors. So hugely increasing the amount of area you're selling. So we increased about 13 and a half percent of uh, saleable area, but we reduced constructed area by about 24 percent. Mm -hmm. uh, usually, of course, when you increase saleable area, you increase your constructed area by about 26%. So that became a huge delta. And we also were able to be far more efficient from an FAR perspective. Um, and so, you know, when we put all of those things together, I think it made a big difference uh, in terms of that project profitability with the limitations that we had. Uh, so that became a good starting point and we've been obviously working with a lot of other uh, clients since then. Another example that we found uh, uh, a very successful project in Dubai that we had recently, uh, it, it, very similar sort of uh, uh, concerns in terms of cost and time. Mm -hmm. uh, building was about uh, 100 meter, 30 floor building uh, with very large structural transfers happening in the building. We were able to, without changing the typical floor or the residential floor at all, we were able to remove 100% of all structural girders from the building. So okay. that's a big saving, not only in terms of cost, but also in terms of time. Mm. Value of time and... Uh, uh, also material, right? So what happens is that your amount of steel that you're using in a building, mm -hmm. in, in that case, we were able to reduce steel consumption by almost 14%. So uh, what tends to happen is, uh, you know, start looking at it from uh, the environmental side of it too, where the, the, the example we just showed you, spoke about, you know, we reduced constructed area by about 25%. Mm -hmm. uh, that means that's 25% lesser embodied carbon. 
That's 25% where you're not electrifying the space, you're not maintaining the space for the life of the building and area that doesn't go into the landfill at the end of the life of the building. So from uh, the environmental perspective, hugely valuable. At the same time, uh, uh, when you start looking at material usage, if you're able to, for the same area, you're able to reduce the amount of steel that we're putting into a building, the amount of concrete you're putting into the building, that just becomes an add-on uh, uh, element. I want to give listeners a bit of a visual, if I can, because you showed me, and it was incredibly helpful to understand exactly what you're saying, but in that project in Mumbai, you basically cut out any wasted space, and that way you would have more room to build and have apartments that you could sell, the developer makes more money. Correct. Yeah. It's exactly that, and th that's also really interesting about working in different geographies, that uh, the FAR rules actually change. Um, right. Of course, so often, in each city, you have multiple different rules, but they obviously change from one city to another. Uh, funnily, there are cities that it's quite similar in, mm. uh, like Dubai's rules are actually quite similar to New York's, etc., etc. But um, the, we've we've been able to, uh, you know, codify that. Where, uh, like for example, in Miami, where uh, the rules actually the common areas are actually not part of FAR, mm. and uh, then one is looking at is there an is there some potential, uh, and, and you know there are developers who are looking at is there a potential of using non-FAR areas, but to make them exclusive right of use to uh, the homeowners. Oh, interesting. So uh, the intent here is that we actually work as a partner to understand. One, obviously, there is the letter of the law, and it's what it says one can on and can and cannot do. And the second is what is uh, really an owner looking to do. Is he looking? What is he looking to maximize? Mm -hmm. And uh, so, once we understand that, we can codify that and test against those parameters, rather than something because, of course, something that works in one part of the world will not directly work in another part of the world. Right. So uh, this allows us to do that. So you can optimize it for the developer for the city, depending like once you know what they want. What absolutely, they need. absolutely. Gotcha. Um, Going off of that, how receptive have you found developers to be to integrating AI into their projects? I imagine that you know when you're suddenly saying you can save this much on construction and you can save this much on materials and you know you can build twenty percent more units or however much it is. I assume that they're they like that. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's it's really interesting. Uh, I, I would say across um, you know all the developers we work with. Um, we've found that, you know, there is of course a subset of it that they reach out to us because of the technology. Um, that's definitely a smaller percentage. Uh, the larger percentage are just interested in what is the value for us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could do that with AI, you could do it with magic, uh, it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you, know, you could be a wizard. I'm sure, I'm sure for some people AI is magic. They're yes. like, you just, you just clicked your fingers and suddenly 20% more units. <laughs> we've, we've heard that. So, so the uh, funny thing is the first response that we get uh, from most developers is, you guys are talking out of the air. This, this doesn't <laughs> seem possible. So the, the first challenge for us is to uh, try and sort of convince them to uh, sort of give us an opportunity to do it on their projects. Right. Yes, they see value when we do it for all the developers that we work with. 
but the biggest impact is when you do an exercise on their project mm -hmm. that leads to uh, multiple sort of projects happening in the future. Um, but the, the really interesting thing is that I think the two things that have happened, mm -hmm. um, especially, uh, you know, we, we've of course been doing it for a while before ChatGPT, but we did see that uh, impact where there was an understanding of what AI can do in the mainstream, uh -huh. uh, however basic it was. But, you know, there somebody could actually see, hey, you know, something that I took, you know, so much time to do, now I'm able to do so much better in such a short period of time. And even though that's a lamb, which is a completely different uh, AI model, it just gives somebody a glimpse into the potential that this has. Um, and it definitely made one things more receptive. Uh, second, you know, for us, uh, just because we're looking at, uh, you know, going broad in terms of markets, what tends to happen is obviously we've worked with, uh, I would say from the top 10 largest developers in India, we are probably working with six out of them. Uh, we're working with some large developers in Dubai. So for us, when you build credibility, it's, you know, unfortunately credibility is, comparatively specific to countries, it's still not worldwide. So what tends to happen is that it takes some time to be able to build that credibility internationally. Um, and so uh, it, the intent always is that once you see, the proof is always in the pudding. Mm -hmm. So the intent is once you actually experience it, then it becomes easier to sort of do that. Uh, but it's, it's really interesting, uh, you know, yesterday at, at the Golf Classic, I was, I was speaking to uh, quite a few people, and AI is often seen more through dread than as an opportunity. Hmm, more dread? Yeah. Uh. Uh, so people are scared, oh, you know, yeah, that's fair. I'm, I'm going to lose my job, mm -hmm, or, right. uh, you know, the world is going to change, etc., etc. And uh, I, I think that's... Uh, an unfortunate uh, way of looking at it mm -hmm. uh, because yes the world is going to change and um, I, I don't think there's any doubt of it but I, I think it also presents us with a massive opportunity because uh, you know remember the mainstream is going to take some time to adapt these new technologies so I think those that take the first step and start using it we'll start seeing a, a good delta between them and their competitors mm. earlier rather than later. Right. And um, I, I, I think that um, it's, and that's more mindset than anything else. Like, uh, it's, it's interesting if you, if you think about, uh, you know, us talking here today, uh, the human connection doesn't change, the ideas doesn't change. Uh, maybe the execution changes, maybe uh, what we are able to do with our time changes. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've, I've always been uh, of the impression that, you know, it will only help us get better answers. Asking the right questions will always be a human endeavor. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if one looks at it from that perspective, uh, it, it and starts looking at AI more, more as an opportunity rather than something to be afraid of. I, I think, you know, uh, it, it'll help everybody and it'll sort of move uh, things faster. There's no doubt that there are parts of this that are 
dangerous um, mm -hmm. of the technology. Um, and there are things that need to be done to curb that. But I think in terms of at least what we're talking about, which is usage of AI in day-to-day -day work and business, etc. I, I think uh, there is a huge opportunity. Uh, and if you ask me, the first uh, trillionaire will be created from the AI uh, field. How are you eyeing a launch in North America? Sure. Um, so uh, we've actually been particularly successful uh, launching into the Middle East uh, with an interesting model. Um, our our uh, typical way of working is uh, we actually uh, complete our entire exercise in four weeks where we're able to give the direct profitability on a project in the first week. So it's, it's a particularly quick turnaround uh, time. Uh, so it is very important to reach the right people. So usually for us, uh, commercial decision makers or those who are interested in the technology. So there, there are there is obviously a subset of people that would be most interested in seeing that value. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it takes time obviously to build that credibility in, in, a, in a new country. So what we did in Dubai was we actually worked a lot with um, connectors, super connectors. Realtors tend to be really good at this, where uh, we worked on uh, a referral fee model because of course the profitability is quite large, so we are able to do that and the turnaround is very quick. Um, so that actually worked particularly well for us in the Middle East. Okay. And uh, that's what we're looking to do in, in North American market. I, I don't think I spoke about, our, our model is success fee based. So the advantage of, of the model is that in, in the first week you get an idea, all we need is a set of plans. And in the first week you get an idea, is this a viable exercise for us, you, etc., etc. If it is, usually in a month we conclude the exercise and we hand over, that could be a month and a half. Um, we, we work with uh, structural consultants, I, I would say some of the best structural consultants in the United States, we're working with some MEP consultants in the United States, so we have all of the background to be able to build this through. Uh, so the idea is we actually work with uh, realtors or super connectors to actually uh, use the referral model to be able to amplify this uh, outreach and to build that credibility really quickly. Uh, to then, you know, be able to uh, do this on a more or on a wider level. Got it. And and one aspect, uh, both me and Jay sort of studied uh, in America, mm -hmm. did a master's in architecture. Both of us have worked here for a few years uh, before we sort of went back uh, home. So that uh, context really adds credibility to being in this environment. We understand uh, USA a lot more then maybe the Middle East uh, or any new territory that we try and expand, right. uh, it helps us quite a bit. That yeah. makes sense. You can imagine that. Yeah. We've also um, heard from um, some people who want to invest. Uh, and so there, there are multiple ways of growth. Uh, we've been evaluating all of them. We've currently been uh, completely bootstrapped. Uh, and so, you know, we've been thinking about multiple uh, sort of versions of growth or multiple ways of growing. But it's uh, you know it's it's a very exciting market, and uh, here in Miami you actually see the kind of scale of work that's going on. Absolutely, so and much construction. The whole it's, city. <laughs> it's insane what's going on, and uh, 
you know, having looked at uh, some plans while we're here, we're quite excited about. <laughs> <laughs> we're quite excited about what we can do here. <laughs> Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have a guest or idea you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. As we said earlier, we're taking a break next week, but we'll be back January 2nd with an inside look into New York's next legislative session. Tune in then and happy holidays.